everybody. Welcome back to The Smattering, where we ask the important questions about investing. I'm Jason Hall, and joined by my good friend, Jeff Santoro, the voice of the people. Jeff. Hey, hey. How you doing, buddy? I'm good. I'm good. We've been having a lot of good conversations lately, like getting into kind of some deep, existentially important investing topics. The fun thing about this podcast is when we get to take what is a text conversation and turn it into a podcast. So that's what we're going to do today. Before we do that, just real quick housekeeping reminders for everyone. Please keep sharing the show. Please keep rating and reviewing it, going to the YouTube channel, subscribing, liking the videos. We really appreciate that. Again, we're always trying to grow the podcast, get more people to, to hear it or see it, however they decide to check it out. So we really appreciate the help and the reviews on the podcast apps especially are helpful for us because that you know, that helps the algorithm put them in front of the right people so we can expand the audience. So Jason, you and I were chatting about, you had this sort of deep question about if your investing goals are different than your incentives, which I thought was interesting, but I sort of had a hard time wrapping my head around it. And we decided, well, let's have a conversation about it while we're recording. So here we are. We'll see how this goes. Um, so what did you mean when you asked me about goals and incentives and if they're aligned or not? Like what was the genesis of that and what were you thinking? Well, let me let me back up first a little bit because the the genesis for thinking through this started off with um something I decided to tweet out. And one of the things that I've learned as as an individual investor over the past 15 years that just continues to prove itself true is understanding incentives. And when you think about managements, you know, understanding what are their what what are the things that drive their <clears throat> their pay, you're, you're going to learn a tremendous amount about their behaviors. And I think this is a thing that carries over broadly across life. But I tweeted out, if you want to understand, and this is paraphrasing what I tweeted, that, you know, if you want to understand more about people and managers' behavior, the three the three words that sum it up are follow the money. And the reality is that when it comes to an executive at a company, the CEO, manager, whatever level they're at, the sales manager that's running a sales department, the bank branch manager, you think about what happened with Wells Fargo with, so this was something that was like their, their, their customer level people is if you understand what their incentives are, you're going to understand their actions and behaviors and people's actions and behaviors so think about it this way. If, if you want a manager to act in your best interest, if you want that executive, that CEO to act in your best interest, you have to make sure that their compensation is aligned with it because the only time they're going to act in your best interest is when it's also in their best interest. It doesn't work the other way around. They don't act in their best interest when it's also aligned with their own best interest, right? It starts with their best interest first, but that's human nature, right? That's how, that's how we're wired. And that specific thought that, Hey, this is human nature. That's how we're wired. Got me thinking about more broadly, how does this infect, how does this affect us as investors and the decisions we make and the returns that we generate our performance over, over the long term? 
So when you say incentives, do you are do you mean the same thing as goals? Like is that what you're is that just is it another word for your goals? Like if my goal is to have enough money to retire on, is that also my incentive or are you thinking of it differently? This is honestly I think that's a question to a certain extent I'm I'm still trying I'm still trying to answer because I think this is going to be an episode where we're going to talk a lot about the toolbox, right? And having a framework and, and, and understanding what tools are available to you as an investor and using the right tools. And one of the things that we have talked about a lot is honestly, one of our big advantages as an individual investor versus a pro or versus uh, anybody that's investing other people's money, running a company, you know, you're, you're, we have the advantage of time, right? We know when our goals are, we know when, our kids are going to start college. We know when we're going to retire. We know when we want to, you know, be able to quit our job and and live independently, right? We know we know all of those dates, right? So we know what our goals are and when they are. When you're managing other people's money, when you're running a company, everybody else's goals are going to get pushed on you, right? Everybody's chasing the quarter. All of those things kind of come into play, right? So when we start talking about incentives they are generally not always the same thing. So I'm the CEO of a company and there's the company's goals, right? We are whatever we've stated and you, you go through any company's uh, investor day presentation and they update these things on a quarterly basis. They state what their goals are. What are they looking to achieve in margins, right? What is their operating margin they're trying to generate? What are they trying to grow their sales on a kegger basis, right? Stuff like that. What is their earnings per share they're trying to generate? Companies tell you this, right? These are their goals. And then they lay out how they're going to get there, right? So the company's goals are there and it's the management's job to, 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 to get the company to achieve those goals. But the CEO's incentives are the things that are in his compensation plan. You can see that in the proxy when they file the proxy statement, right? That allow him to get his, whatever his bonuses are, whether it's the, the equity part of it or the cash bonus. And they can be tied to things like the stock price over a 30 day period before the end of the quarter, or maybe sales growth or some other metric that they've, that they've laid out there. Some companies it's tied to things like safety, like manufacturers have it tied to that kind of stuff. So what you get is like, like an overlap, like, like sometimes the incentives the, the metrics that, that will achieve those incentives overla overlap with the goals of the company, but not always clearly. And almost always there's a situation, there is a way to game the company's performance that may achieve the metrics that, that, that generate the incentive that for the, for the management, but don't necessarily reach the goals. For example, if, if, if revenue growth is, is one of the metrics, you know, a company can, a management may decide to lower prices to grow revenue faster at the sake of profitability. And as the owner of the business, I want the business to achieve optimal profitability, not op optimal revenue growth. So, it, yeah. And you see it a lot when, when the other place I've seen it is where incentive compensation is tied to earnings per share, because that's, that's often the number you can see manipulated with adjusted earnings and adjusted this and also how you how you do stock-based compensation and things like that so so that part i understand like the and just thinking about the toolbox for investors listening that is something that 
I know I probably should pay a little bit more attention to and don't always is how how management is compensated and if those metrics are aligned with what's in the best interest of shareholders. But I guess, so then how do you think about it for individual investors? Like when you think about incentives versus goals for companies, you laid that out pretty clearly. I think that makes a lot of sense, but I don't get paid any more or less based on my personal investing decisions. You know, I mean, I do in, in terms of investment, you know, gains, but no one's giving me a, you know, a bonus because my portfolio ended the quarter up certain, a certain percent. So what, how do you think about it when it comes to like incentives versus goals for individual investors? So I think the key thing that got me really thinking about this whole topic, and I promise I'm going to get around to answering the question you just asked me here. Um, asking it over and over again until you, until you give an answer. So the thing that got me really thinking about this is I've read so many studies and there's been so much research into individual investor performance compared to whether you're comparing it to the market, whether you're comparing it to the actual things that the investors invested in. And Jeff, we are terrible. We as not the royal we here, but we as a, a, a species, we're just really bad at stock investing in particular, but investing broadly is not because it doesn't really match up with kind of the skill sets that we've evolved. It just, it doesn't work. But like you look at like Dalbar does this, it's the QAIB, it's the quantitative analysis of investor behavior. He did a look at studied um, the individual investor returns in the Magellan Fund while Peter Lynch was running it, you know, in the eighties through the nineties. And Time after time, what you see is that whatever the asset class is, whatever the thing is, the investors that participated in owning that asset class always managed to do worse than that asset did, whether it's large stock index funds or, or value funds or whatever it may be. If you, had a, if you had invested with Peter Lynch, just bought in and just stayed in for 20 years, and he beat the market by seven or eight percentage points every single year. I think his Kager was like almost 20% a year for 20 years. It's just this incredible record. But I think, don't hold me to this, but I think that the average investor in that fund underperformed the S&P 500 because they got in when it was really popular, when they were talking about it a lot, when it had a good quarter, a good year. Investors piled in and then the market turned and they sold and lost money, right? So that human behavior is such a big, a big thing. So all of that to say, I started thinking about, we talk about goals, we talk about tools, we talk about all of these things, but we never really talk about like the incentives. And again, it's easy to like draw the difference between a company's goals and the incentives for the management team. It's the money they're going to get paid for getting to the metrics that are going to get them paid the most money. For investors, it, it, it would seem that, well, the behaviors that are going to drive the best returns, those are the incentives. But if you look at our performance as a cohort, obviously the, there's, there are some other incentives at play here that I think play some role. And there's all the other stuff too, Jeff. There's all of the cognitive biases we've talked about. There's the fear of missing out. We talk fear and greed, right? We talk about those two major things that drive us, our behavior as investors. 
And I guess what I've really come down on is that our goals and our incentives are not the same thing. So as I hear you talk through it, I'm sort of trying to define it in my own head. And one of the things that I was just thinking about was, and this is just like a, a theory I came up with in the moment. So feel free to poke holes in it. But I do wonder if, I do wonder if you're an individual stock buying investor like we are, and not even people who write about it or have any sort of public facing, you know, track record to sort of talk about, but just a, just a average Joe investor who likes to pick their own stocks. I'm starting to think of an incentive they have is to be what they view as like a successful stock picker. So, and it, and I don't know, maybe it's like what Lou said in our last episode about, you know, having the great story to tell at a cocktail party. Right. You, oh, you're, 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 you're an investor. Oh yeah. I bought this stock in this year and it, and it, and I sold it and bought a BMW. Right. You know, like that story you get to tell, like <clears throat> that could be. Have you ever gone into that conversation with and have said, oh yeah, I'm terrible at this. I'm a terrible. Right. So like, I wonder if one of the incentives that like we, we have as individual investors is just simply like bragging rights or the desire to show the competence in this, in a specific type of successful investing, right? Because I think if you sat down with someone who was 85 years old with a multi-million dollar portfolio that they built up over their investing life, that's a success story. But that's not as exciting as I bought Tesla at $13 and now, you know, I'm a millionaire. <laughs> So I wonder if that's one of the incentives that we kind of struggle with. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. And, and I've kind of, as much as I would love to absolutely shred apart this little mini thesis that you've built, I, I, I really, I kind of agree with it because again, I'm thinking about who we are, thinking about the people listening to the show, thinking about myself, the people that I've gotten to know, like you and Lou and Tyler Crow and so many other people, um, members I've engaged with at the Motley Fool and seven investing and that kind of thing. The number one, you're starting with somebody that's successful. These are people that have made money and are making money and that generally are pretty educated and they know that just go buy an index fund. You're going to do good. You're going to do, do fine. But whether it's ego or whatever it may be, there's something their past success I can, I can do better, right? I, I don't, I don't need to pay, you know, basis points to some fund manager. I can pick my own and I can do better than him. I can do better than the market. So that's, I think that is a big part of it is that one of our incentives becomes kind of those bragging rights, that, that ability to, to say, I'm, I'm good at this and demonstrate it. And the problem, Jeff, is recency bias is so powerful. It's hard no, nobody, nobody talks about the stock they bought six years ago, right? They talk about the stock they bought six months ago and, and that clouds our judgment so much. And, and I think it leads to those behaviors that we've talked about. They get tied to, to, to making bad decisions. It reminds me of something we had talked about previously on the podcast about Paying, paying less attention to the individual positions in your portfolio and paying more attention to the bottom line aggregate of those positions in your portfolio. And that's where like the goals piece comes into play. Like if your goal is to retire and have money to live off of, 
then it's really that total number that matters. It's that how much is your investment portfolio worth on the day you need it to be worth something? That's what matters. But our incentives are to say, this percentage of my stocks are in the positive territory and I'm beating the market by this much and, and all those sorts of things. What are some other, I'm trying to think like, other than like that piece of it, that like, I want to show that I know what I'm doing. Um, are there any other incentives that you're thinking of that sort of butt up against our goals? I think sometimes it's a lack of, a lack of really, really defining what your goals are. And, and building that framework because social pressure is a powerful, powerful thing, Jeff. And, you know, those, those little, those little incentives in life to impress the people around us, to impress ourselves, right. As again, I, I don't even think necessarily a lot of this is about just bragging rights or status. It, it becomes really heavily tied to your own self, self, um, self image. Well, yeah. And, I think even more than just self-image, but like there's almost an incentive to prove to yourself that you can do it so that you don't feel like an idiot for not just buying an index fund. Like I know that's con that's something I'm conscious of because my individual stock portfolio, which again, I started buying stocks in February of 2020. My individual stock portfolio is still down and it is it's down just overall, like it has lost money and it is down compared to the S&P 500. So had I just bought an index fund instead of individual stocks, I'd be in a better position. Now, I'm, I've am i learned enough about how the stock market works to know that I can't beat myself too much, to beat myself up too much over having two thirds of my investing life take place during a bear market, or at least half, right? just depending on how you look at it. But there, I do have an incentive to go back to that, to prove to myself that I'm, I know enough to do this successfully so that I don't look back 10 years from now and 20 years from now and say, well, if I had bought an index fund, I'd be better off. So I think that's tied to what you're talking about too. Yeah. I think another thing that kind of falls in that incentive bucket is you think about relationship pressures and, and your spouse. I know we have a lot of guys that listen to this podcast that can... Jeff, you and I are married guys. So this is an experience that you and I both have talked about is when you make this decision and you have a, a shared financial life with your partner and part of the conversation is I'm going to start buying individual stocks. And a lot of those conversations are, whoa, that's really risky. What are you doing? You're now you're part of starting to put our family's future at risk. And let's be honest, a lot of people that thought they were really smart investors in 2021 learned something very different about themselves in 2022 and are now looking at big deficits. And now they have a serious incentive to try to fix it. Yeah, that's, you just hit on something really big. I think that's where you could, not you, but I think that's where anyone could get themselves into really big trouble. No, no, neither did I. No, no, I've been flawless. No, but I mean that it, it's true. Like it, when you start feeling the pressure of maybe I made a mistake, maybe I shouldn't have bought stocks in general. Maybe I shouldn't have bought these particular stocks. I should have just stayed in my mutual fund or my index fund, whatever. 
you could feel the pressure and that, and then the incentive could be, well, I need to, now I need to double down, right? Now I need to triple my position in this stock because I need to make up, now it's down and I need to put more in so that it'll, you know, turn green. And I can now say to my partner, look, I do know what I'm doing. So like that is absolutely an incentive and a pressure point, especially I think for, I don't even think you have to be misaligned in a way with your significant other, but just if you're, if, if you're listening and you're the person in your relationship that makes the majority of these decisions, the pressure is going to fall on you to make the right decisions. And I think that could, that could be an incentive to then make what you know in your brain <laughs> are the wrong decisions, but the incentive structure is to do something. And, th- and that goes back to the whole doing something because you feel like you have to do something versus doing the, the something you should do is nothing. So sometimes that's, that's a hard pressure to face too. It is. And, you know, and I want to say this too, because it's, it's not binary men, men do it stupid and take on too much risk and women don't, it's not binary. Right. But by and large, again, the evidence is pretty clear that men do tend to get a little over their heads and, and have, or tend to be far more overconfident when it comes to making these stock buying decisions, making these investing decisions, women tend to be more conservative. But again, it's either way, if, if, if you've the person in your family that's kind of taken this on, particularly just in the past few years, you know, your incentives to, to save face and also your incentives to not potentially blow up your relationship uh, can be very, very strong. And I think it's one of those things where this is where you start to run into that disalignment between your goals, your long-term goals and your incentives. Because the reality is, is I'm fortunate that, you know, I was in the right place at the right time in 2006 and 2007, where I was just really just getting started. I fell into uh, an industry and a sales job where I made great money during the best time to be buying stocks in most of our lifetimes during the global financial crisis. I got really lucky to start at that bottom, right? When a lot of people got started, you know, in late 2020, early 2021, kind of at, at a recent, at a recent top. But the point is, is that for those people that were unfortunate to start at that terrible time, there were some stocks that they probably bought that they paid what looks like just stupid prices right now, that if you get back to the framework in the long term, if you stay the course and your course is still that 10, 20, 30 years starting to look at decades, something that our friend Brian Withers talked about when he came on the show and like how his perception about long-term, what it really means. And it's not three to five years. It's like decades. That's when these sorts of things end up not mattering. You know, you can screw up in 2021 and 2022 and then just keep buying. Right. And then the next thing you know, it's 2032 and everything's completely different. And it looks like you made a bunch of great mistakes, even though in the moment, you know, all of your incentives were telling you, fix this, get out, start over, double down. And if you just stick to the focusing on those long-term goals, everything's going to work out. Yeah. It, it reminds me of stuff we've talked about several times over the course of the months we've been doing this podcast, but it, it mostly reminds me of that conversation we had in the episode called investing is hard <laughs> or what's the hardest part about investing, right? Um, everything. But that it is true. Like I think about my own, you know, sort of, you know, you and I have talked about this. I don't know if I've ever said it on the podcast. I 
I buy stocks weekly, but over the past couple months, what I've started to do is instead of taking my weekly dollar amount and spreading it over three stocks, I've been buying just one because as I've gotten more confident and feel like I can make a little bit more informed research-based decisions, I wanted to put a little bit more money where my mouth is, so to speak. But at the same time, I'm still taking tiny, tiny little baby steps in terms of like the scope of my portfolio. And I go back and forth constantly between, you know, I feel like the pressure slash incentive to buy even more individual stocks because I know if I'm right, I'll see that huge benefit down the road. But then I'm also, I see, then I have the other side of the devil or angel on my other shoulder saying, hold on. You've been doing this for just a couple of years. You don't know everything yet. You could still be very wrong. And that's, that. it's almost like two sides of that. It's like two different opposing incentives that I'm constantly sort of battling. And I think that that's what's hard about this. But I, I think to your point, knowing your goals can be the grounding principle, I think, that can help you uh, fight against incentives that go against your goals. Like I, I have to, I have to remind myself sometimes like, all that really matters is that when I retire, I have enough money. That that's really that's really it. And if along the way I get lucky or skillful and I can sell a couple stocks to help pay off college or sell some stocks to to buy a car or something, like great. That's like icing on my cake. That's how I have to look at it. But my incentive sometimes is to, oh, you, I should put a lot more money in this stock because if that 10x is, you know, there's there's a college payment <laughs> or something like that. There's a little, there's a little more to it that, that I think is important because I think it does start with knowing your goals. There's no doubt about that. But again, it's just like that, that CEO of the company that it, it's one thing to have really doable, accomplishable goals as a company. And it's another thing to have incentives that are completely disaligned. I mean, that CEO could have sat down with the board over a year and built the company's long-term plan and been deeply involved and invested in the process of creating that long-term plan. But if their incentives are not aligned with it, to, to paraphrase Mike Tyson, as soon as things go off plan, as soon as somebody punches the company in the face, right, the, the plan goes out the window and it, it's, it's every, everybody for themselves to a certain extent. So I think it starts with that. But I think but the incentives can kick in and override the goals. Yeah. And I think the way you have to, the way you, what you have to do as an investor, and again, I can speak for me, is you make sure that your incentives aren't the thing that, that can cause you to get away from focusing on your goals. So for example, if you have overextended yourself to the point that your investments are now affecting your income and your ability to cover your basic expenses and to go on vacation and to go out to dinner with friends and all of that kind of stuff, then your incentives are so disaligned that if your investing plan doesn't work out, and I'm going to tell you people, it's not going to work out. It's going to screw up because the market is going to do what the market's going to do in the short term. And if you, if you're, if you're, if you are too tied to your portfolio to pay for your bills, your incentives are going to drive your returns. They're going to drive your behaviors when it comes to managing your portfolio. So you have to be anti-fragile 
to crib from our, our buddy, Brian Stoffel is you, you have to make sure that there is a, I mean, there's gotta be like a fortress in between you and your invested assets. And you can live outside of those assets, right? You have to be at a point or, or be in a situation where, you know, we could go through a, a financial crisis and it's not going to undermine your future because those assets have, will have lost so much value. So I think that's hugely important is to get your incentives and your, your long-term goals so separated from creating that sort of, of risk that can undermine your portfolio, because all of the things that we talked about are, are going to get in the way. So knowing your goals is part of it, but you might have to just completely rebuild things to get them separate. Yeah. I like the idea of, I'm almost thinking of it as sort of a, a checklist you can run through in your own mind when you're going to make any sort of big financial decision to ask yourself, is this decision aligned with my goals or is this decision driven by incentives? Right. Like I almost feel like that would be any, that could be something you could ask yourself. And I'm not saying like, you don't have to do that if you're deciding to take your hundred dollars and put it on stock X versus stock Y necessarily. Like it doesn't have to be for every tiny little decision, but like if you're deciding, Oh, I just inherited $40,000. I'm going to put it into quantum scape stock, or I'm going to put it in, a, I'm going to ladder, I'm going to make, do a laddered CD strategy and get just high yield savings out of it. Like that's a decision you should probably run through the, is this aligned with my goal or is this driven by incentives? Like that, that's the kind of decision I think that's the most helpful for. I think another one too is, is you have to just look yourself in the mirror and say, all right, do, do I want to be rich or do I want to look rich? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Do I want to have a million dollars or do I want to look like I have a million or buy a million dollar home, you know, or whatever the spend a million dollars. Thank you. That's the better way to put it. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I, that's a whole nother, I mean, we already sort of talked about it in terms of like earlier in terms of like stock performance, but that whole appearing rich is a whole different incentive structure too. That, that is may or may not be aligned with your goals. Maybe your goal is to look rich. I don't know. Jeff, this is, this is heavy stuff. Let's, let's put it down and go have some coffee. What do you say? I say what I always say. I'm going to edit out your joke about coffee, but let's take a break regardless. And then we'll come back and talk some more. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. We're going to try a new segment out today. This is, this is one we're going to call... What's in Jeff's drawers? Hey, Jeff. What's in your drawers, buddy? We'll go with that. Well, it's a singular drawer and it's in my office. And what's in it is savings bonds that have matured. So <laughs> the audience is either relieved or disappointed right now. But regardless, we're going to talk about savings bonds because I have a decision to make. I, My wife and I could both have a bunch of savings bonds that we would get as I'm, I'm assuming a lot of people our age, Jason, when they were when they were kids and teenagers, 
it was common, I think, to to get a savings bond from like your grandparents, like every birthday or for Christmas or something. Yeah. It was the disappointing present. Yeah. But now I'm pretty excited about it because I have not all of the savings bonds I've I remember cashing some in when I was right out of college to to pay for some things, but most of the ones it was mostly beer, yeah. But I got a bunch that are matured, so they're not gaining any more interest. And my wife is in the same position. We have some that were hers that are matured and not gaining any interest. So I have to decide what to do with them. And it's an interesting position to be in because it's not rename this segments. There's no interest in Jeff's drawers. Oh, that is really good. <laughs> we should have thought of that earlier. Well, you know. Uh, all right. Anyway, there is no interest in the savings bond in my drawer, singular. So, Jason, I want your thoughts. I, I've i thought of a couple options. I, I, Six months ago, I probably would have wanted to cash these out and buy stocks. Because six months ago or a year ago, maybe is a better time frame, there wouldn't have been a good option otherwise to get any yield on these bonds that are now mature. And I would have th thought the stock market would be the best place to go. But now I could just put them straight up in my high yield savings account that I've had for years and get, I think it's 3.75% right now, or they're even advertising a 11 month CD, I think for 5%. Now that's like a promotional rate, but still that's, you could get, you could put them in, you could put them in a brokerage in a money market and get four, four and a quarter. Right. And I think that's so, okay, let's, let's talk about this. You know, you, you've talked about going through this transition where six months plus you, you immediately would have gravitated to stocks. And now you're thinking more about yield and, and the first question I have is why let's start with why you, what's changed compared to like a year ago. Not much. I mean, in terms of my financial situation, I think, so I will say this with your, what's changed with your mindset. I don't know. I, I, I do wonder if the macro economic environment has made me see the value in just maybe padding my cash emergency fund a little bit. You know what I mean? Like why not take this extra money? get three, four, 5% on it and let it just make my security blanket be a little bit more secure. But then on the other hand, it's more fun to buy stocks with it. <laughs> it is. So I'm going to answer this in a couple different ways to give you my, my ideas. So number one, I thought it was important to, to ha ask that why and looking at, so again, this is, by the way, this is worth mentioning. We should probably add this to the beginning too. We recorded this on April 11th. Um, I'll be on vacation the week that we run it. The market is down over the past year. The S&P 500 is down roughly 8%. So it's actually up from where it was at the beginning of the year. It's, it's up 18, 19%. I think for the, well, that's the NASDAQ. The Dow, the, the, the S&P is up around 7%. So, but again, it's still down from where it was you know, a year and a quarter ago, Jeff, but I, same as you, I, a couple of things that have changed for me in the way that I'm thinking about it is I don't, I don't see a lot of the same opportunities that I did three or six months ago. 
for some some of my favorite businesses that I just think are durable, right? And I saw some cheap some cheap prices on some some really good businesses. And I have some near-term economic kind of concerns as well. And I couldn't fault any investor right now that took the opportunity to just capture a little more yield because you're being you're being you're being compensated to be patient. Right? I I would probably if you're thinking about this as dry powder that you could quickly de- you know liquidate and deploy um into stocks i would probably avoid a, a cd even a short term one because you're going to pay some penalties to to cash it out early and it's going to take a couple of days or whatever but throwing it in a money market in a brokerage account and getting that 4% i think you could do worse things and then that gives you the opportunity to be patient and to be picky about what you do deploy it into if you do decide to to deploy it into stocks. That's probably what I would be thinking thinking about doing. Yeah, it's it's interesting. One thing you said just there gave me something else to think about, which was I'm typically not a person who keeps cash in my brokerage account or in my investment in in my IRA or anything like not invested. I typically am fully invested, you know, except for the dividends that trickle in and things like that. But maybe, maybe, right. But this could be an opportunity for me to keep a little cash on the side, get a good yield, like you said, and then maybe, who knows, if we do see another downturn in the market and the stocks I really like take another 20, 30% haircut over the course of a month or two, maybe I, I'm, I'm in a better position to to use some of that cash to take advantage. So, and, you know, that, but that's the, the reason I thought it would be an interesting conversation is things like this sometimes happen to people. They, whether it's finding finding something in your drawers, or whether it's maybe you sell a car and decide to only have one car, or you get something through inheritance or something like that. Like people do come across chunks of money at times, and there's always a decision what to do with it. And that decision is a lot. You have more options. I feel like now because there's so many places to get the yield than you might've felt like you had a year ago. So I, that's why I thought it was an interesting thing to, to talk through. Um, you know, cause like not to be doom and gloom on the market, I'm always going to be a buyer of stocks regardless of what's going on, but I just, I can't help thinking the risk isn't as worth it when you're getting 4% in your savings account. That's half the average market return right there, yearly return on average. So it's tempting. Yeah, so you you need to let us know what you decide to do once you make that decision. But there is one more option. Technically, it's two it's two more options. If this is another drawers joke, I'm here for it. Yeah, well, it's it's not it's not. Um, I'm all out of those. I'm all out of those. But here's the other thing that you could do: you could take the money and you could divide it equally. And you could give it to two of our listeners' favorite charities. You could give it to the Motley Fool Foundation. You could give it to No Kid Hungry. This feels like a segue. Why'd you have to go make it awkward? That's my job, Jeff. But no, that is, that's, that's, we have, we have decided, you have really decided we've, we've, Gone through, we got, and we got a few more suggestions and this kind of actually one that we got 
from from one of our longtime listeners and somebody that follows us both on <clears throat> follows us both on Twitter, kind of put it over the top that we should do these two these two charities because we heard from multiple listeners about both of them, which is something that we didn't get for most other charities. And they're both charities that we feel serve really important purposes. The Molly Fool Foundation is incredibly aligned with what we're doing on this podcast, right, Jeff? And helping people, you know, we, we talk to people that have money that are trying to invest, but the Motley Fool Foundation is taking it to another level and helping people that aren't even at that point yet. And I think that's a really powerful mission. Yeah, they the the, the quick way to explain what they're doing that I resonated with me is they've sort of bucketed people into three you know, categories of, you know, people who are already investing and, and have money to do so, the people who are really close, like, you know, right, right there about, about having enough money to invest. And then the people who are really struggling and realizing that the scope of helping everyone was too large, they're focusing on that middle group. So yeah, I think they're calling them strivers, people who are about to get to that point of being able to put money away. So we thought that was a good foundation to a good charity. Plus, it's something that's not geographically central to any one part of the country or any part of the world, frankly, and it could really be something that appeals to everyone. And then the No Kid Hungry, I think, pretty self-explanatory. <laughs> Nobody wants children to be hungry. Great, great charity. A tremendous amount of the money that comes in actually goes to feeding kids. That's a big thing for me, is there are so many charities out there that if, if a third of the money they raise actually goes to support their cause, it's a lot but theirs is 80 or 90%. It's a pretty high amount, which is really good. And again, it's also one of those charities that's pretty large. And we wanted to have charities that would be appealing to, to we have listeners all over the world, but we really wanted to have charities that were pretty broad. So thank you for those suggestions. Yeah. So what we're going to do is if team audience wins, if our combined team wins on the portfolio contest, or if the unportfolio wins, we will sp we will split what we give and we will ask the listeners to give to both of those charities the full foundation and no kid hungry and we'll add them to the spreadsheet i was going to say one thing too if in there when you're giving those when you're giving to those charities if there's like a comments box or something you can put in if you could just mention the smattering in that that would be kind of cool to um you know let them know where the idea came from and i want to say this too jeff by by no means are we trying to say that small local charities are not important. Those are some of the most important charities in the world. We support a couple close to us. We have a local food bank that we support. And Jeff, I'm sure you have local charities there that you support as well. But again, we just wanted something that would be pretty emblematic of what we're trying to represent that was kind of aligned with our, with our listeners too. Yep. And for anyone who wants like links to those charities or, or if you're driving and can't write, write them down or anything like that, the portfolio is always linked in our show notes and in the portfolio, it's just a Google sheet. You'll see links to the charities. We'll add them today before this, this goes live. Hey Jeff, we did it, buddy. Once again, friends, just a reminder, Jeff and I love to give our answers to these important questions about investing. It's up to you to get your own answers figured out. And we believe in you. You can do it. And you can give to good charities. Okay, Jeff. See you next time. See you next time.